If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 3. As we conclude looking at the book of Titus this morning, we're in Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, as we look to these closing verses of the book of Titus this morning, we see what on the surface might appear to be a few incidental details and a few personal instructions, and so they are. As such, we might be tempted just to skip through them and move along as if there were really nothing to see here. But there are important truths to be gleaned even from the incidental details and instructions that are given to Titus in the closing of this letter. Given that these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, we would not expect anything less. And so as we consider these closing four verses of the book of Titus, we'll do so under four main headings. First, we'll see Paul's strategies in action. Secondly, we'll see his concern for fruitfulness. Thirdly, we'll see the mutual love that exists among Christians. And finally, the blessing of grace. So we see strategies in action, concern for fruitfulness, mutual love among Christians, and the blessing of grace. And so first of all, in verse 12, we see Paul's strategies in action. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, where I have decided to winter there. Now there are a couple of Paul's strategies embedded in this verse that are worth noting. First, we, we see his concern for the leadership of the churches there on the island of Crete. And secondly, we see the way that he makes use of time and seasons. In regard to his concern for the churches of Crete, we can gather from his statement here that he wants them to have proper leadership. He wants Titus, obviously, to come to meet him at Nicopolis, perhaps to spend the winter with him there in ministry or perhaps in in preparation for future work. But what we should note here is that he didn't tell Titus to take off and leave for Nicopolis as soon as he received the letter. Rather, he's supposed to wait. He's supposed to wait until someone came there to Crete to replace him. Titus's work there on the island of Crete, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 5, was to set in order what remained to appoint elders in every town. This work evidently was not done. And it seems from verse 12 that we should understand that Paul is not expecting that this task on the island of Crete would be wrapped up immediately and that the churches would be in a place where they can govern and function by themselves. They're working up to that point, but they're not quite there yet. And that being the case, Paul says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. In other words, Titus needs to stay at his post until he is relieved, until either Artemis or Tychicus show up to take his place. 
there on Crete so that they can continue this work of appointing elders and setting in order these matters that remain to be set up in the churches. Just think in terms of a military operation. For example, during the trench warfare of World War I, it was customary for British uh, customary British practice for units of soldiers to rotate in and out of the front lines so that soldiers would not be continually there in the front lines for weeks and months on end. They would rotate back to positions of reserve and so on. But when it was time for one unit to leave their position, they wouldn't just leave and abandon it and leave the trench unoccupied. That could quite understandably be disastrous in wartime. And so they would wait until they were properly relieved and a new unit could come up and occupy the position. And it was the same idea here. Paul was concerned for the well-being of these churches on Crete and did not want to leave them without proper leadership. He still wanted the process to continue so that things could be set in order. Now, who are these two men? Paul has two potential choices of men that he might send there to Crete. We don't know anything certain about this man Artemis beyond what we can surmise from this verse. Evidently, he was a companion of Paul, and a minister of the gospel who could potentially be sent by Paul on such a mission as this to help out in this kind of situation. Now, Paul's other option for potential replacement for Titus was a man named Tychicus. Now, we don't know much about Tychicus, but we do see him mentioned in a small handful of places in the New Testament. We find him in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, as a traveling companion of Paul. We find him mentioned in Ephesians 6.21 and referred to there as a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. And indeed, it seems likely that he was actually the one who carried the letter of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. Similarly, we find him referred to in Colossians 4.7 and 8 as a beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. And Paul had sent him to inform the Colossians about his circumstances so that he might encourage their hearts. And so Tychicus was a man who served the cause of Christ by ministering with Paul and by being sent by Paul on these various missions. And we find in Ephesians 6.22 that Paul sent Tychicus to the Ephesians so that they might know about Paul, what his circumstances were, and that Tychicus might comfort their hearts. And again, near the end of Paul's life, we find in 2 Timothy 4.12 that Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus once again. And so in the final analysis, we don't know which of these two men Paul eventually did send to Crete. But the point, again, is that Paul is looking out for the churches. He didn't just pull Titus out of there and let the churches spend for themselves. These churches are yet in a tender and delicate state and in need of experienced leadership. Paul is concerned for them. He wanted them to have the help that they needed 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, Paul had said, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And in this rather incidental detail that we see in verse 12, I think we see some of this concern that Paul had for the churches on display. And I think we also see something here of Paul's desire to improve the time, his desire to make the most of the time because the days are evil. He says there in verse 12 that he had decided to winter in Nicopolis. Now, in the ancient 
Greco-Roman world, there are several cities named Nicopolis, and it's difficult, uh, perhaps impossible, to be exactly sure which one Paul was referring to here. One reasonable conjecture, though, is that he meant the Nicopolis, which was up on the west coast of Greece, up on the Ionian Sea. And some have taken this verse where Paul summons Titus to Nicopolis and tried to link it up with what we find in 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul says that he sent Titus to Dalmatia, which would be modern-day Croatia. And so if you, if you take these two verses in tandem and suppose that this all represents one movement of Titus, it might well be that Paul had called Titus up from Crete to meet him at Nicopolis and then had sent him further up the coast to Croatia on a missionary journey. It's completely plausible, but we don't know for sure. But what we should notice here, though, is that Paul is making plans. He's seeking to redeem the time. At that time, the winter was a time to hunker down and not a time to be traveling by sea in the Mediterranean. Acts chapter 27 and Paul's shipwreck on the island of Malta gives us a picture of what you could expect if you tried to sail on the Mediterranean too late in the year. And so Paul is being wise here. He knows that he can't travel by sea during the winter, and so he's making plans as to where he's going to spend the winter. We don't know for sure if he's planning to do some pioneer missionary work there in Nicopolis or if he's wanting Titus to to come up to help him so that Titus can be further discipled or if he wants Titus to come up to be with him so that they can plot and plan for this future missionary journey that Titus would take up into Dalmatia or some combination of those things possibly. We're not exactly sure. But we do know that he planned to be there at Nicopolis for the winter. We know that he wanted Titus to be there. And it seems safe to assume that he had really good reason for wanting Titus to be there. Whatever the reason was, it was good enough for Paul to pull Titus away from the good work that he was doing there on Crete and then leaving it in the hands either of Artemis or Tychicus. And so we see here in verse 12, Paul's strategies in action. The apostle was a man who was looking out for the well-being of the churches and was seeking to use his time well, making plans for the future. And seeing this example in the life of Paul, I think we would do well to look to ourselves and ask ourselves, how much do we care for the well-being of Christ's church? We see Paul's concern and example here and We have to understand, of course, that he's in a unique position as an apostle. As such, he is in a position that entails a greater and more particular concern and greater authority and a wider uh, wider swath of churches than any of us have. We need to grant that he's in a unique position in that regard. But at the same time, we can learn a very helpful lesson here from his concern for the well-being of the churches. This is a godly concern. And while our concern for the local church and for the universal church is going to take a different shape from that of Paul, we should still be concerned with the well-being of the church and should be seeking to do our part, as Paul was, to ensure the well-being of the body of Christ. And one helpful way of thinking about this is thinking about those things that we commit to do in our church covenant. For those of us who are members here, and the things that we commit to do in our church covenant are actually nothing that are extra-biblical requirements. We're only committing to do things that are actually commanded to us by God. And so we are to be working and praying for the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, 
We're to be walking together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. This includes loving one another by being involved in each other's lives. We show our concern for the church by exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonishing and entreating one another as occasion may require. And this is to say that we care for the church by caring for the well-being of Christ's sheep who are here. And again, this is not just the job of the elders. This is the job of you all as members of this church. This means that we watch over one another and we function, in a sense, as our brother's keeper, not in the sense of imposing legalistic and extra-biblical standards on our brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather seeking to encourage one another in true biblical godliness. Certainly, this includes admonishing one another when we find a brother or a sister to be sinning, but it also means that we should be encouraging one another in walking with the Lord, that we walk through life together and continually point one another toward Christ and toward the Word of God as we do so. Just think of of Pilgrim's Progress, for those of you who are familiar with that book. Think of the way that, that Hopeful and Christian continually helped one another and safeguarded one another on their way to the celestial city. Bunyan writes of them and says, Saints fellowship, if it be managed well, keeps them awake, and that in spite of hell. Now, certainly neither Hopeful nor Christian were, were perfect in that, but they worked at it. Right? They, they worked to, to help each other along. Sometimes they led each other astray. That's, that's what happens sometimes in our lives together as believers. And so we're not going to, to help one another along perfectly either. But we ought to at least be working at it. And to that end, we care for the church by, by showing up. Right? By not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together, as we say in the covenant. When you show up, you're not only taking steps to ensure that one particular member, that is, you yourself, are staying grounded in the Word of God and in the worship of God, but you're also providing an opportunity for your brothers and sisters in Christ to be edified. If Christians manage their fellowship well, it keeps us awake, right? It keeps us invigorated and strengthened. One infantry officer observed long ago that a very comforting sense of comradeship can be developed by tramping along in fours, right? When you imagine that you've got a column of soldiers marching and you've got four across, and he says there's a very comforting sense of comradeship that can be developed in that way. He says there's a sense of close company, the ability to talk to your neighbor, even to sing with him. There is the inevitable swing and rhythm of the column. But the same officer contrasted marching along in fours versus marching single file. He said that when you put men in single file, this corporate cheerfulness evaporates. And if this can be applied to a company of infantrymen, how much more does it apply to the church? There's a corporate cheerfulness when we gather together and speak to one another and sing with one another, right? If you have a chance to sing when you're marching along in force, how much more do you have a chance to sing with one another when we're gathered together in the worship of God? But you split, up that corp- you, you, you split us up, though, and that corporate cheerfulness and that rhythm evaporates. Further, we care for the church by praying for ourselves and others. We have a prayer meeting Sunday evening where we do this very thing together. And we should also be praying, of course, individually. We care for the church by working for 
the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship ordinances, disciplines, and doctrines. And we do this by serving in various capacities as we have opportunity. In particular, we uh, participate in the governance of the church by attending business meetings as we're able to do. And our concern for the church should not be limited to our own local church as if this were the extent of the kingdom of God. But we can show our concern for the church universal by praying for other churches, by getting to know other Christians from other churches and encouraging them and so on. Paul was concerned here for the well-being of the church, and he was strategic in his planning and in his use of time, and we do well to imitate him in this. The second thing that we see in these verses is Paul's concern for the fruitfulness of others. We see this in verses 13 and 14. And so he commands Titus, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. It seems likely that Zenos and Apollos were the ones who probably delivered this letter to Titus. They were on their way to Titus. Paul knew that they were on their way. And Paul knew that Titus would be in a position where he was able to offer them assistance as a result of reading this letter. All the evidence therefore, seems to suggest that these were probably the men that Paul had entrusted this letter to. Now, we don't know anything certain about this man, Zenos, beyond what we can glean from this verse. We don't even know if he was a lawyer in respect to Roman law or if he was a Jew who was an expert in Jewish law and was thus called a lawyer, even as we find the experts in Jewish law referred to as lawyers sometimes in the gospel accounts as they were interacting with Jesus. But... The fact that Zenos was a companion of Apollos and the fact that Paul urges Titus to diligently help them so that nothing is lacking for them would seem to indicate that this man, Zenos, is on some kind of ministerial gospel mission. We learn from Acts 18 about this man, Apollos. Apollos was a Jew who had been born in Alexandria and who was mighty in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and It was evident that he believed because of his actions. He was fervent in spirit and was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. That's what Luke tells us there in Acts 18. He was speaking out boldly about Christ there in the synagogue at Ephesus. But despite his boldness and his mightiness in the scriptures, there were some things that he didn't have down quite right. And so we're told that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then we find later on that he went to Achaia, and greatly helped those who had believed through grace, and that he did this by powerfully refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Moreover, we find in 1 Corinthians some evidence concerning the edifying ministry of Apollos. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, But God was causing the growth. And so this man, Apollos, was a servant, servant of Christ, through whose preaching people were saved, through whose preaching the body of Christ was edified and and built up. This was a man who watered the seeds that were planted by Paul. His ministry was helpful to the growth of these Christians. And now we find him here again, years later, still serving, evidently still preaching, still ministering, such that Paul commands Titus to help Apollos and his companion Zenos on their way 
so that nothing is lacking for them. Again, we see Paul's concern for the advance of the gospel. These men are on some ministerial mission. Where they're going, we have no idea. But evidently, they're passing through Crete, and Paul wants them to be helped towards their final destination, wherever that was. And we should notice, though, in verse 14, that Paul is apparently not expecting Titus to provide all of the support for Zenos and Apollos by himself, because he adds, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. This is to say that Christians in general need to be paying attention to what is going on, to see what needs to be done, to see who or what causes need to be supported and get involved, to engage in good deeds in relation to those pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Again, we see this issue of, of good works coming up. Paul has, has repeatedly brought this issue of good works up here in this book of Titus. And notice how Paul's concern is twofold. On the one hand, he's concerned that Zenos and Apollos be helped so that they can get on their way to minister wherever they are going. But Paul is also concerned about the people in the pews, so to speak. Paul knows that Zenos and Apollos aren't the only ones involved in ministry. Or at least they aren't supposed to be the only ones involved in ministry. Zenos and Apollos seem to have a, a particular type of ministry in which they are engaged, preaching and teaching and so on, but that is not the only kind of ministry that exists. Those who support them by providing for their needs so that they are able to get wherever they're going to preach, those who provide for them financially are also involved in ministry too. And Paul wants the people in the pews to be fruitful, to bear fruit in good deeds, particularly this kind of good deed. And so when the people in the pews step up and get involved by meeting these pressing needs, this is an act by which they bear fruit. Now what is fruit? What is fruit in the, the biblical sense of the term? I think we could say that fruit is some kind of godly behavior or godly action that testifies to the reality of the spiritual life of the one who produces it. And so our Lord speaks in Matthew 7, 17 through 20, and he says, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Likewise, John 15 I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. And so Paul's not only concerned that Zenos and Apollos be supported for their ministry so that the gospel might advance, but he's also concerned that there might be good fruit in the lives of all of these Christians who might support them. And when it came to Paul himself and to churches giving financial support to him, we see that he was much more excited about the goodness of this godly fruit in their lives. He's much more excited that the giving showed evidence of godly fruit in their lives than he was about whatever benefit he might have received by receiving their generous offering. And we saw that somewhat in our unison reading this morning in Philippians chapter 4. And so he had said there, he said, "...not that I seek the gift itself." But I seek the profit which increases to your account. He's not talking about 
the Philippians supporting him because he is seeking something more because he's just desperate for their support. But rather he glories in the good and godly fruit which had manifested itself in the lives of those believers. And he wanted to give credit where credit was due and to rejoice in this manifestation of the faith and godliness of these Christians, which was ultimately the result of the grace of God, which had been at work in them, giving them such faith and such godliness as to be expressed in the giving of this gift. The situation there with respect to the Philippians and and Paul in Philippians 4 was such as the Huguenot preacher Jean Dale expressed it. He said, The assistance of the Philippians was of no very great consequence to the apostle. For what could a little money avail to a man who despised life and death, who regarded the riches and glory of this world as dung, who crucified the flesh and was satisfied with that condition in which he found himself? How sad soever it might be. All the gain was on the side of the Philippians, who from this charity would one day reap the glory and praise of their Lord. And it is on this account that it was so pleasing to the apostle. This it was which caused him to rejoice. Paul was the grateful recipient of their charity. And their gift had fully supplied his need, as he said there in Philippians 4. But there was something deeper, something greater, and something of more significance going on. And so he described their gift, Philippians 4.18, as a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And this same fruitfulness was the kind of fruitfulness that Paul desired for these Christians here on the island of Crete. He wants them to engage in good deeds and to meet these pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. He wants them to help others and to bear this godly fruit themselves. He desires that all of them, likewise, would be faithful in offering up this kind of acceptable sacrifice, this fragrant aroma, well-pleasing to God. Now, as we we think about the situation in particular that was going on here, and Paul's concern in this case, it seems clear that this good deed of meeting pressing needs and being fruitful are particularly in relation to supporting the work of the gospel financially. Right? This is what Paul's getting at. He's wanting some kind of contribution to be made to Apollos and Zenos so that they can go out and minister the gospel. Financial support for the advance of the gospel. And we still do that today. We support the work of the gospel financially. Again, for those of us who are members of this church, this is what we covenant to do. We promise that we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. This is what we do as Christians. We recognize the truth that is taught here in Titus 3, that We must also learn to engage in good deeds and meet pressing needs so that we will not be unfruitful. So we support missionaries. We give to those who have gone out for the sake of the name of Christ. We help them on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. We have a benevolence fund to meet the needs of those who are struggling, who reach out to our church. And you all support me as your pastor. You all support Jamie part-time so that he can serve as our assistant. You meet the expenses of the church. It probably doesn't sound very romantic or like a very spiritual use of money, but we have to pay BG&E to keep the lights on. We have to pay BG&E to keep the heat on in the winter and the AC running in the summer. We 
have to pay to keep the grass cut and to keep the phone working. If we don't join together to meet pressing needs, the missionaries won't be supported, we won't be able to keep the lights on, and so forth. And on that note, let me just say, we need to be really thankful to the Lord for the way that he has, in general, provided for us as a church. We've been really blessed in this regard. The financial needs of the church have been met by means of this good fruit overflowing in your lives. Praise God for this great blessing. But even though the the meeting of pressing needs that was in view here in verses 13 and 14 seems to have involved financial support, there are plenty of ways that we can meet pressing needs other than simply giving finances, right? Some needs pretty much require money in order to be met. Other needs cannot be met with money. Other needs will not be met with money, right? Sometimes money cannot buy what the need requires. So just because finances aren't required, that doesn't necessarily mean that the need is not pressing. Some pressing needs are not related to finances. Sometimes the kingdom of God just needs people to show up and work and be involved. And so now that we're working towards a greater return to normalcy, we've got the nursery opened up, right? We need, need people to serve in the nursery. Uh, Lord willing, we're hoping to get Awana started up this fall again on Sunday evenings, and if so, we'll need people to show up and help. Our brother David Coyman is still involved in helping out at the Karis House up in Baltimore, and if you're interested in helping to serve the women there in some way, I'm sure that David would be happy to, to try to plug you in as best as he is able so that you can serve. Our sister Angela, I'm sure, would, would love to talk to anyone who is interested in helping out at the Laurel Pregnancy Center. Uh, to help there with that ministry. And so sometimes we engage in good deeds by giving money. Sometimes we engage in good deeds and meet pressing needs by just showing up and being involved. And there are all kinds of ways to do this. Some families uh, support missionaries themselves. Obviously, we as a church support missionaries. Sometimes families will, will take on a particular missionary that they will help to support or some cause or organization, a Christian Crisis Pregnancy Center or Christian Rescue Mission or something of that nature. And so places like this need volunteers. Places like this need finances. The point is there are all kinds of ways to engage in good deeds, all kinds of ways to meet pressing needs. And as believers, we must learn to do this. We certainly can't meet every need, but we can meet some of them, and we must. Paul tells us our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And this brings us then to our third point as we come to verse 15. We see Paul's final greetings. We see this mutual love that exists among believers. He says, All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Now in this we see this love that existed between these early Christians. Those who were with Paul wanted to greet Titus, and the believers in Crete loved Paul. Paul knew that there were believers there who loved him and those who were with him. And notice, notice the way that he speaks here. This is, this is unique language. We don't find Paul speaking precisely this manner anywhere else in the New Testament. He says, greet those who love us in the faith. 
The reality of, of which he speaks here is that there is a special kind of love that exists amongst believers. And this is because as Christians we belong to the same Lord. We've been bought by one and the same sacrifice, the blood of Christ shed for our sins upon the cross. In him we are one family. And therefore the love that exists, us, uh, exists among us is unique. For the words of, of one writer, what induces a godly man to love the saints is the fact that he is closely related to them. We love one another, again, because we're part of the same family. And so it was that Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 6.10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. We're supposed to be doing good to all people. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. There were Christians there on the island of Crete who loved Paul and loved him in the faith. They knew that they stood united in their common faith in Christ and therefore they loved him. And this is a sign of spiritual life. And so we're told in 1 John 3.14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Similarly, this love testifies to the world that we belong to Christ. Our Lord told us in John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. This mutual love of brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters in the faith, is not optional. This is actually at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And so let us heed the exhortation of of John, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So brothers and sisters, let us love one another. In the truth, let us demonstrate it in practical action. Let's love one another in the faith, because there is a special bond among us that is unique. And finally, we see the blessing of grace. Paul closes this letter by saying, Grace be with you all. In this letter, Paul has laid upon Titus some very serious and sobering responsibilities. Titus is supposed to be raising up men to serve as elders in the church. He's supposed to be rebuking those who are led astray so that they will be sound in the faith. He's responsible to speak things which are fitting for sound doctrine He's supposed to be teaching the various demographics of the church how they in particular should live as those who have received the grace of God in Christ. He's to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and not allow anyone to despise him. He's to speak confidently about the good news of the free salvation that is ours by the grace of God and to encourage those who have believed God to engage in good works. And he's supposed to avoid distractions that are unprofitable and foolish and to reject those who would cause divisions within the church. Now, taken all together, this is a tall order. Who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not Titus, not in himself. He can't do all of this on his own. Left to himself, he would be sure to fail. But the final words of this letter are a needed reminder to Titus that he was not on his own. Paul says, grace be with you all. It is his, his benediction. It's Paul's prayer. It's Paul's heart desire that the grace of God would be with Titus in this task to which he was called. And this is not only expressed to Titus, but it is expressed 
to others as well. The final you here is in the plural and indicates that this letter is not only intended for Titus, but for also those who are under the care of Titus. He desires that God's grace would be with them all. And indeed, the uh, a more literal rendering of the final phrase here would be to say, grace be with all of you all. It's, it's a, uh, a double plural, you might say. Grace be with all of you all. And if we look at the letters of Paul, he does not conclude until he pronounces this kind of blessing. They might not be the very last words of the letter, and sometimes he expresses it in different ways, but nonetheless, he always concludes with the blessing of grace for the recipients of these letters. As one writer observed, this pattern manifests a foundation truth for Paul. For the ongoing life of believers, the grace of Jesus is absolutely essential. For, our, for the beginning of our lives as Christians, grace is essential. For the continuance of our lives as Christians, grace is essential. Grace is God's unmerited favor and goodwill towards us in Christ. Grace is the fountain and the foundation of every blessing that we enjoy as Christians. It's by God's grace that we are saved through faith. It's by God's grace that we are endowed with the gift of saving faith. It's by God's grace that we are justified, that our sins are forgiven, that we are counted righteous. It's by God's grace that we are adopted into the family of God. It's by God's grace that we are sanctified as we are enabled to die more and more to our sins and to live unto righteousness more and more as we are conformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ because it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it's by God's grace that we persevere in the faith unto the end as we are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time as we find in 1 Peter 1.5. This is the grace of God. God has given grace to his people in Christ. And yet, what do we read near the greeting of almost every New Testament epistle and near the end of every New Testament epistle? It's a prayer that God would give grace to his people. Or perhaps a pronouncement of blessing that God would give grace to his people. The grace of God is something that is freely given to us. And it is something that we can grow in, something that can grow also in us as God works in us by the Holy Spirit, producing the fruits of righteousness. It's something that we desperately need day by day as Christians. And so desperate is our need that we cannot continue the Christian life without it. And yet God gives it to us day by day. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet repented of your sins and trusted in Christ... I want you to understand that as things stand, you are outside of the grace of God. And apart from the grace of God, you are completely helpless. As it stands, you are still guilty in your sins. It is by grace that we're forgiven. And if you're outside of the grace of God, you have not been forgiven. You've rebelled against the God who has made you. You have rebelled in your heart You've rebelled in your actions. You've rebelled in your words. And God is just. God judges the guilty. But God is not only supremely just, he is also supremely merciful. And through the death of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, he has made a way by which sinners may be forgiven. For those of us who are believers in Christ, 
This is how we have entered into the grace of God, because we have trusted in Christ. It's nothing that we have done, but what God has done for us through Christ. And in the preaching of the gospel this morning, God commands that all people everywhere repent and believe. God has made a gracious provision for sinners like us. And so I urge you today to run to Christ, to repent and to believe. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what this means to enter into the grace of God through faith. And all of you who are believers here today, please be reminded afresh and also comforted today that we have no hope outside of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. No hope outside of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the one hand, that might sound frightening or scary, but it's not really, because Jesus Christ is abundant in grace. It was true at the beginning of our Christian lives that we were helpless apart from His grace. It is true at every point in our Christian lives that we have no hope at all apart from the grace of Christ. Left to ourselves for a single moment, we are bound to fall. His grace alone can strengthen us and cause us to stand. This is humbling, but it's also empowering because it is only in His grace that true strength is found. And so believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, run to Christ afresh. Find in Him all of the grace, all of the mercy, all of the peace and strength that you need. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the riches of Your grace toward us in Christ. Father, we ask that You would help us to be daily dependent upon Christ, never to be self-reliant, but rather always humble, always looking to Christ for strength, for grace, for help. And Father, we praise you that the grace of our Lord is more than abundant, that he richly supplies all of our needs. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us. Help us, Lord, that we would be fruitful and ready for good works, ready to meet pressing needs. We thank you for all of your kindness, all of your grace towards us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.